All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, another episode of Hawk Droppings. Um, today, we are going to talk about the actual order that was issued uh, by Judge Arthur Engeron in uh, Donald Trump's civil lawsuit brought against him, his two adult sons, and the Trump Organization by New York State Attorney General Letitia James. Um, and just as an FYI, we... We put out four different podcasts every week, uh, five episodes of four different shows, and you can learn more about those at hawkpodcasts.com. So I'm going to I'm going to do this order in a little bit of a reverse direction. I'm going to start at the end. Um, So this was a civil case. It was not criminal. First, meaning that the burden of proof is much lower. You're not going for beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, the the burden of proof, and I'm looking at page 75, the judgment, uh, the order is uh, 92 pages long. And after he gets through the statement of facts, uh, Judge Engeron then gets into the law and, and part of that section is, uh, the first section is uh, the burden of proof. The burden of proof in a civil case like this is the preponderance of the evidence. And so if you're visualizing like the scales of justice, beyond a reasonable doubt is like one side's all the way down and the other side's all the way up. A preponderance of the evidence, it's also referred to as more likely than not. It's like 51% to 49 it's just like the scales just kind of go like that. That's that's your burden of proof, more likely than not. So it's a much lower burden of proof. Uh, it's much easier to meet that burden of proof uh, in a civil case than beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case. Uh, so Judge Engeron starts off with the burden of proof, and then he goes through a section where he goes through the defenses uh, to these allegations that, that Trump uh Asserted. And let me back up one second here. So there were seven, there were seven causes of action in this case. And remember that before the trial even started, uh, Letitia James had filed what's called a motion for summary judgment. And the judge granted her motion for summary judgment as to the first count, which was the which was just an overall fraud count. And and that a motion for summary judgment, you basically one side can file it uh, and and say you know even if you even if you view all of the evidence in favor of the other party, uh, there is no dispute at law as to this cause of action or other causes of action, and we should get a judgment on this cause of action right now, before there's even a trial. Uh, the judge agreed with Le- uh, Letitia James as to the first count, the fraud count, and he found uh, all of the interested parties, mainly Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump Jr., Alan Weisselberg, uh, the Trump Organization, the Donald Trump Revocable Trust, yada, 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 uh, found them to be liable uh, for basically a decade-long persistent pattern of fraudulent behavior uh, in their business activities, and so that's the big that's the big Kahuna out of the way 
right out of the gate. So they were liable for that before this trial even started. That leaves six remaining, uh, six remaining counts, um, which were uh, the second cause of action was for repeatedly and persistently falsifying business records. Count three was for conspiracy to falsify business records. The fourth cause of action is for repeatedly and persistently issuing false financial statements. Uh, the fifth count is for conspiracy to submit false financial statements. The sixth count is uh, repeatedly and persistently committing insurance fraud. And the seventh cause of action was for conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. And um, so getting back to the defenses, Trump and his attorneys put forward that there was no fraud, uh, that uh, the lenders in question in this case did not rely on his financial statements whatsoever. Um, there was plenty of evidence, uh, documentary and testimonial, that banks, insurance companies in the city of New York did, in fact, rely on defendants to be truthful and accurate in their financial submissions. Uh, then they, they tried to blame the accountants. Um, Judge Engeron's conclusion on this, uh, on this defense is there is overwhelming evidence from both interested and non-interested witnesses corroborated by documentary evidence that the buck for being truthful and supporting data valuation stopped with the Trump organization, not the accountants. So he dispatched with that defense as well. Uh, materiality. <laughs> so the, the, Trump's making the argument, well, even if we did make misrepresentations, they weren't material. Uh, and the, uh, the judge dispatched with that one in similar fashion. The last one was different appraisers are going to come up with different appraisal numbers. Well, sometimes these appraisals varied by $150, $200 million. That's, I mean, different appraisers, different appraisals. That's, you know, appraising a house for $150,000 versus $155,000, not $150,000 versus $200 million and $150,000. Um, so that was silly, just silly, silly, silly. So then we get to uh, the disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. And one of the plaintiff's experts, the plaintiff is the state, uh, Letitia James, New York Attorney General. They had a guy named, I think his first name is pronounced Michael, even though it's spelled M-I-C-H-I-E-L. His last name is McCarty using very conservative accounting principles, uh, McCarty calculated the differences between interest rates and determined the following ill-gotten interest savings, which this court hereby adopts as the most reasonable approximation of the ill-gotten interest rate savings, uh, which evidence was presented at trial. I'm going to round these up. 73 million uh, from 2014 to 22. Uh, on the loan for the Doral Golf Course, uh, $53,000 from 2015 to 2022 on the old post office loan, the old post, post office that he turned into a hotel in D.C. 
17 million from 2014 to 2022 on a loan relative to a Chicago project and 24 million from 2015 to 2022 uh, relative to the loan for a property located at 40 Wall Street. In total, defendants fraud saved them approximately $168 million in interest, which shall be imposed jointly and severally among Donald Trump and the defendant entities that he owns, controls, uh, as the misconduct was committed by the Trump Organization's top management. Next up, we have... Um, so, in I think it was in May of 2022, Donald Trump sold the uh, the old post office hotel uh, in Washington, D.C. I think he sold it for 325 or $350 million. He used $170 million of that to pay off a loan to Deutsche Bank. Um, but uh, gained profits of around $135 million. And this will tell you everything you need to know about Donald Trump and what he thinks of his kids. Uh, 127 million of that uh, profit was for Donald Trump. Four million was for Eric Trump. Four million was for Donald Trump Jr. Four million was for Ivanka. Ivanka is not part of this uh, suit, so the court disgorged an additional 127 million from Donald, four million from Eric, and four million from Donald Trump Jr. Then there was another hanky business deal that they did. Um, I believe, yeah, Bally's Corporation, uh, where they, uh, through some super shifty things, uh, gained a profit of $60 million. And uh, so the court clawed that back as well, disgorged another 60 million bucks. So you add those up. Uh, it's about $355 million. They also took a million bucks back from Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. And then there was prejudgment interest. That's been calculated at uh, about $100 million. So it's about $455 million uh, against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization in this case. And each one of his adult sons owes $4 million as well. So then there's a section on injunctive relief. And it starts off with this section of necessity of ongoing oversight. <laughs> he goes through some conduct that they engaged in while the case was pending. Uh, and, you know, that the Trump organization has taken to manufacturing its own version of its assets. One fails to include any valuations is a telling admission that it simply cannot or will not prepare a statement of financial condition without committing fraud. <laughs> they, then there's a section called refusal to admit error. Donald Trump to this day doesn't, doesn't acknowledge that he or his kids or the Trump organization ever did anything wrong at all. Uh, you know, the court wants to see contrition, you know, they want to see remorse, not from this guy. Uh, the Trump organization's history of malfeasance, and, you know, they go through the hit, just the history. Uh, accordingly, this court finds that defendants are likely to continue in their fraudulent ways unless the court grants significant injunctive relief. Injunctive means non-monetary. Uh, 
the continuation of Judge, what's her first name? Uh, Judge Jones, I cannot remember her first name. She's a retired judge. She's an independent monitor uh, of the Trump organization. She monitors all of their deals and has like approval over a lot of the things that they are allowed or not allowed to do. Uh, so she's going to stay in place for another three years. This one cracked me up. Appointment of an independent director of compliance. In addition to the continued monitorship by Judge Jones, the court hereby orders that an independent director of compliance <laughs> be installed at the Trump organization who shall be responsible for ensuring good financial and accounting practices, shall establish internal written protocols for financial reporting, and shall also approve any financial disclosures to third parties in advance of submission. So an independent guy or woman who's an expert at all of these things, who gets to see everything the Trump organization is sending out of the office before they send it out of the office. Uh, the, then he put, uh, he banned Alan Weisselberg and a guy named Jeff McConney uh, for life, if I believe, uh, from serving in the financial control of any New York corporation or business entity. Uh, the court enjoins Donald Trump from serving as a director of any New York corporation for three years. Uh, Eric Trump and Don Trump Jr. got the same ban for two years. Um, so those are the defenses. Those are the penalties. And so now let's go back and figure out how the court got there. This, so I'm recording this uh, February 18th. It's Sunday. It's about 7.15. Uh, I did two podcast episodes last night, and I thought I could just read through this order real quick and whip out another one. Uh, I was mistaken in that belief. This, um, it's, it's 92 pages long, and you can see I've got all my little all my little tabs and whatnot. Um, it's 92 pages long. It is single spaced. It is dense. There is a lot of information in here. It's incredibly thorough. I learned a lot uh, from reading this. And, but it was a long read. It took me several hours to get through it. Um, you know, basically the, the allegations and, and, and the disgorgement stuff that I just read through that, that results in that, that figure of 355 million, actually 455 million when you count the prejudgment interest. Uh, you, you know, they, I mean, put it this way Trump, his sons, and members of the Trump organization, as we'll see, they lied to everybody about everything all of the time. And there were a lot of instances where they were also lying to each other in the company. Uh, they were just lying, lying liars all over the place. And especially in their statements of financial condition, which banks and lending institutions relied upon. Uh, and by way of example, like they, they, they did a lot of work with uh, Deutsche Bank. They got a lot of financing from Deutsche Bank, a lot of loans from Deutsche Bank. 
and as as we'll see in this document, you know, one of the main guys from Deutsche Bank, he's like, well, you know, we we rely on our clients uh, to be honest and truthful and complete in their statements of financial condition. But when we get those statements of financial condition, we take the total assets that they present to us and we just cut it in half. We give it a 50% haircut. And well, there's one asset in here that I'll talk about that was valued at a little more than $5 million uh, by an independent appraiser that Eric and Don Jr. were consistently putting in the statements of financial condition as being valued at $161 million. So even if you cut that in half, it's still 5 million versus 80 million. And that's the scale on which these guys were doing things. And because the assets and the valuations were so high, they were able to get loan terms and interest rates at much reduced levels, much more favorable to them than they otherwise would have been entitled to. And that's the $170 million number that I read earlier, where it's like, these are the interest savings that they gained that they weren't entitled to, and they would not have received uh, unless they did lie. And so any Gomer, potato head, maggot chud, mouth breathing, inbred wiener who's like comes at you saying this is a victimless crime, they essentially stole $170 million from banks. They stole $170 million from banks. Now, propose to those people that they go in and rob a bank and say, well, it's a bank, so it's a victimless crime, and see how that works out for them. Yeah. The victimless crime crowd are, are, are a bunch of morons. Uh, so we start out this order with an overview of the case, an introduction that uh, talks about common law fraud, uh, common law, he gets into some of the statutes. I'm not going to go through those. They're kind of boring. He talks about the procedural background of the case, uh, goes through the complaint, details that section on summary judgment. And then on page seven, we get to uh, what is always the most important part in a lot of these orders to me, which is the findings of fact. Uh, the findings of fact are, in this case, it's a judge, because this was a bench trial. Uh, the judge, having heard all of the witness testimony, uh, having seen all of the documentary and other kinds of evidence that came in uh, to evidence, uh, he's able to, uh, you know, determine the. Uh, I'm having a, I'm having a COVID brain moment. Uh, the the credibility, that's the word I was looking for, the credibility of the witnesses, how much weight to give their testimony. Uh, and so he is the finder of fact. And so in a case like this, the judge is going to write out, these are the things that I determined to be facts in this case. Um, and like I said, this judgment is 92 pages long. The findings of fact is 68 pages long. And there's some stuff in here I'm going to skip. So he starts off with going through the different categories of witnesses and he writes up their testimony. And then at the end is like, did I find this witness to be credible or not? Did I give weight to their testimony or not? Uh, so he starts off with a guy named Donald Bender from Mazars, which is the accounting firm that he used. And the first category is, is non-party witnesses. 
meaning, you know, these are some of the people that Trump and the Trump organization worked with, but they're not parties to the case. They're not defendants. Uh, some folks from Whitley Penn and going through, uh, you know, they testify a lot about, well, you know, here's what we expect from, from our clients when they submit uh, statements of financial condition. They refer to them as SFCs in this. There's another woman from Deutsche Bank named Rosemary Vrablic, V-R-A-B-L-I-C, who was introduced to Donald Trump in 2011 by Jared Kushner. <laughs> and she went on to have a very long relationship uh, with Trump until they terminated that relationship, I think, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, then there's some New York State appraiser folks, some other loan originator folks, uh, another appraiser from a company called Cushman Wakefield, some more folks from Mazars, uh, and then um, and they're going through a lot of the things that they did and detailing communications that they had with either Donald Trump uh, or Alan Weisselberg. Uh, or uh, other Don Jr., Eric Jr., Eric Jr. I love calling Eric Trump, Eric Trump Jr. It's just funny. It's amusing to me, and that's why I do it, because if something is amusing to me, then that's, that's enough. Uh, so then we get to the individual defendant witnesses. So these are individuals who are named defendants in the case. And there's one guy named Jeff McConney, who was a controller, for the Trump organization from the early 2000s until February 2023. He reported directly to Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer. And this is my favorite. This is one of my absolute favorite things in this. McConney created and maintained annual spreadsheets referred to, and these words are capitalized, Jeff's supporting data. that contained the itemized valuations that became the aggregate numbers uh, reported on the statements of financial condition. Each annual version of Jeff's supporting data, that's what they call this file, Jeff's supporting data. It's not like Trump organization's supporting data. It's like, oh, that's for Jeff. That's Jeff's data. It's just ridiculous. So he's the one who's compiling and keeping all of this information. Now, he understood that Trump had engaged Mazars to perform a compilation for the spread, uh, the, the, the statement, which differs significantly from a review or an audit. Um, the, the beautiful thing about Letitia James in this case, she had everybody's emails. She had all their text messages. She had voicemail messages. She'd question somebody about something and they'd be like, no, that didn't happen. Or I don't remember it happening that way. And then she'd put an email in front of them or 10 emails in front of them and then play a voicemail message for them, show them a bunch of text messages. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the way it happened. And so this guy was hiding information. He was including information as cash or assets, uh, which never should have been. Uh, like for one example, like they had this property, uh, at 40 wall street and when they were, so they overvalued that building by a couple of hundred million bucks. And then they said it had positive cash flow at times varying between like 25 million a year versus up to like $68 million a year. When in reality, the building was worth $200 million less than they said it was. 
and it actually had negative cash flow in the $20 million range. So it's like every single place where they could lie about these things, they lied every single time. And it was always to banks. It was always on these statements of financial condition. And it was always to get some financial benefit that they weren't entitled to have. Uh, and McConney was the other guy, along with Alan Weisselberg, who received a lifetime ban. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's one quote that I liked from his testimony. Initially, when questioned by the Office of Attorney General, McConney denied Alan Weisselberg ever asked him to commit fraud on behalf of the Trump Organization. However, when confronted with his sworn testimony from a previous criminal trial, McConney admitted that Weisselberg did, in fact, on more than one occasion, ask McConney to assist him in committing tax fraud. <laughs> and then we have Alan Weisselberg. I mean, he perjured himself during this trial, so he's going back to prison. Uh, he already served like six months in Rikers at like 78 years old for Donald Trump. I couldn't imagine going to Rikers ever, let alone going to Rikers at 78 years old. I mean, good God, man. Um, another thing, all of these people at the Trump organization, except for one guy who they brought in later, none of them were CPAs. None of them were certified public accountants. None of them knew jack shit about accounting. And, and there's an acronym all throughout this order, G-A-A-P, GAP. Uh, and that stands for uh, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. None of them had any idea what the components of Generally Accepted Accounting Principles were, what the requirements were, what the principles are. All these people doing all of this financial accounting stuff, none of them were CPAs. None of them understood what the generally accepted accounting principles were. They're just winging it. And it was, it's just such a, it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy thing to read. I highly recommend that people read it. Uh, if you're nerdy, it'll be entertaining. If you're not, it won't. <laughs> but, you know. And it's like when they were shopping for, anytime they were shopping for insurance, Weisselberg confirmed that insurance company representatives could only review financial information in person at Trump Tower in his presence and were not permitted to make copies or take anything with them. That seems on the up and up. Uh, so then on page 29, we get to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., excuse me. DJ TJ. <laughs> DJ TJ started working for the Trump Organization in 2001, uh, answering directly to his dad. Uh, since 2011, he's been an executive vice president, uh, reporting to his dad. Uh, and then when Trump got elected, uh, Don Jr. and Eric Jr. were co-CEOs. They were also presidents, directors, executive vice presidents, and or chairman of the various Trump organization entities. Yeah. Um, so at some point after Alan Weisselberg was convicted and sent to prison, uh, his relationship with the Trump organization, his employment relationship ended. 
Trump Jr. testified that he does not know the details of how or why Weisselberg ended his employment relationship with the Trump organization, which this court finds to be entirely unbelievable. <laughs> the thing I love about Judge Engeron, man, is he just doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't cut, he doesn't leave you hanging, you know, as far as, gosh, I wonder what he means by that turn of phrase. No, he tells you straight out, man. Um, he goes through some stuff that uh, Don Jr. did, and Don Jr. acknowledges that as a trustee for the, the Donald Trump trust, uh, he was subject to fiduciary responsibilities. That's basically a heightened duty when it comes to finances. Uh, he is not a CPA. Uh, he has never received any training uh, on applying generally accepted accounting principles. He has no knowledge of the requirements of generally accepted accounting principles. He's never been employed in a position that required him to apply uh, generally accepted accounting principles. He does not know what those are. He's just, he's such a potato, man. It's ridiculous. Um, so they go through a bunch of stuff that he did, uh, including, you know, the $4 million profit from the sale of the old post office that Donald Trump Jr. now has to give back. Eric Trump, Eric Trump Jr. joined the Trump organization right out of college in 2006, reporting directly to his father. Uh, when Donald Trump Sr. got elected president, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump Jr. were co-CEOs, but it was mainly Eric. Uh, Eric Trump's credibility was severely damaged when he repeatedly denied knowing that his father even compiled statements of financial condition that valued his assets and showed his net worth, quote, until this case came to fruition. So Eric Trump's saying, I didn't even know we did these until the state attorney general filed this lawsuit. Upon being confronted with copious documentary evidence conclusively demonstrating otherwise, he finally conceded that, at least as early as August of 2013, he knew about his father's statements of financial condition, begrudgingly acknowledging, well, it appears that way, yes. So, And they all came into court and lied, repeatedly. Uh, and then, so Eric Trump was, and I'll talk about this in a minute, Eric Trump was instrumental in this thing called Seven Springs. That's the thing, that's the asset that I mentioned earlier that's actually worth around $5 million, but they said it's worth 161 And here we go. Although Eric Trump advised McConaughey in August 2013 to continue to use the $161 million value for the proposed $7 million or seven mansion development at Seven Springs, emails demonstrate that Eric Trump was aware of a valuation by a professional appraiser engaged by the Trump organization who valued the hypothetical development at approximately $5.5 million. So he knew. He unconvincingly tried to distance himself from this evidence, asserting he, he was not focused on it because, quote, I'm a construction guy. Is there anybody who looks at Eric Trump and says, oh, he must be in construction? Right. Jesus. Uh, so again, it's just lie after lie after lie. So then we get to Donald Trump Sr. 
He's the sole beneficiary of the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, under which all Trump organization assets are whole are, are held. Uh, he is the beneficial owner of the collection of companies branded as the Trump Organization. So another thing, it's like his kids don't have ownership interest in anything at the Trump Organization. Zero. Nothing. Which also, like, cool. Thanks, Dad. Uh, Letitia James got him to admit all kinds of things on the stand. Um, and the best, uh, he, you know, the whole thing is that they were overvaluing all of these assets by billions of dollars. And she, she, he was being questioned, uh, by one of her attorneys and he was like, well, if anything, you know, we, I think we undervalued everything because we have tremendous properties. We have the best properties there. Our properties are so valuable. And the question, if anything, do you think the statements undervalued your assets? Is that correct? Yes, by a lot. The financial statements, which had already been conclusively false uh, by that point in the trial. Uh, when here's here, yeah. And there was a lot of stuff with uh, regards to his condo. It's 10,000 square feet. They kept using the number 30,000 square feet. And when questioned about whether he had ever inflated the value of the property located at 40 Wall Street, Donald Trump was confronted with a Forbes article, including a published audio recording dated September 21, 2022, that reported that Trump had told Forbes in 2015 that 40 Wall Street was 72 stories tall, when in fact it is only 63 stories tall, resulting in an overvaluation of $50 million. <laughs> the article also reported that Donald Trump told Forbes uh, that 40 Wall Street had a net operating income of $64 million in 2015, when in fact it ran a deficit of more than $8.7 million. Yeah. When asked if he was misquoted, Trump said, I don't know. I don't know what I said. <laughs> uh, then we have some party witnesses. I'm going to skip some of these guys. Because uh, they're not super. Although there was a guy named Ray Flores. Joined the Trump Organization in 2012 as an analyst on the acquisitions and development team. He was promoted to associate, then he was promoted vice president, where he began negotiating financial agreements and managing properties. Um, he said, I do not recall a lot. And then he was confronted with emails and voicemails and memos and notes. Uh, let me see if any of these... Da -da -da -da. So they, there, there was Doral, a, a, a golf course in Florida. Um, in 2020, the property appraiser determined the market value of Doral to be $78 million, a fact that uh, Flores was acutely aware. Notwithstanding the supporting data, uh, the statement's financial condition valued Doral at $345 million and $297 million, respectively. Flores denied any recollection of this, despite the emails that demonstrate his active participation. <laughs> whoops <laughs> Michael Cohen so we get to Michael Cohen um, who 
In 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty in the federal district court for the Southern District of New York to several counts of tax evasion, one count of misrepresentation to a financial institution, two counts of of violating campaign finance laws. That's the Manhattan DA case, 34 felony counts that's being brought against Donald Trump right now. The trial starts on March 25th, two counts of violating campaign finance laws. Uh, That's why that case is an election interference case. And one count of misrepresentation to Congress. Cohen cooperated with the government and was sentenced to 36 months in prison. Now, um, he was a very damning witness, but he was very upfront about everything related to him, all the bad things that he had done, which builds your credibility if you're upfront about things and you tell the truth. And although the animosity between the witness, Cohen, and the defendant, Trump, is palpable, providing Cohen with an incentive to lie, the court found his testimony credible. Based on the relaxed manner in which he testified, the general plausibility of his statements, and most importantly, the way his testimony was corroborated by other trial evidence. A less forgiving fact finder might have concluded differently, might have might not have believed a single word of a convicted perjurer. This fact finder, Judge Engeron, does not believe that pleading guilty to perjury means that you can never tell the truth ever again. Michael Cohen told the truth. So that's an example of what I mean by at the end of these uh, sections for each different witness where the judge will say, did I believe him? Did I not believe him? How much weight am I giving to this person's testimony or is it irrelevant? A guy named David Orowitz. I don't care about that guy. Uh, Ivanka Trump. So Ivanka Trump was initially a defendant and then got out of it. I think for her, it had to do with a statute of limitations thing. And when she actually left, I think she left the Trump organization in like 2016 or 2017. She was intimately involved in securing loans for... I believe the Doral golf course, the Chicago project, uh, and, and was dealing with Ms. Vrablick from Deutsche Bank. And she would just be testifying and be like, wow. Um, so Ivanka Trump was a thoughtful, articulate, and poised witness, as one would expect from Ivanka. But she'd be like, I just, I really don't have any, I don't really have any recollection of that deal. I don't have any recollection of those communications. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Um, y- you know, she consistently denied recalling the event, the contents of documentary evidence that confirmed she actively participated in these events, even after she was confronted with the evidence. <laughs> so getting back to the judge's assessment, Ivanka Trump was a thoughtful, articulate and poised witness, but the court found her inconsistent recall, depending on whether she was being questioned by the attorney general or the defense, her memory was perfect when she was being questioned by daddy's lawyers. Suspect. In any event, what Ms. Trump cannot recall is memorialized in contemporaneous emails and documents in the absence of her memory. The documents speak for themselves. That's a polite way of saying she's full of shit. Okay, now we get to... uh, There were a lot of expert witnesses in this case. And one was the Michael McCarty guy who... uh, came up with those differentials in interest rates. 
the judge gave his testimony a lot of credibility. Expert witness Stephen Whitcoff was offered by defendants as an expert in the field of real estate development. Whitcoff has been a good friend of Donald Trump's for more than 20 years. Whitcoff conceded that he is neither an appraiser nor an accounting expert, nor is he familiar with what estimated current value is under generally accepted accounting principles. He did not review any of Donald Trump's statements of financial condition, nor did he review any of the operative legal documents, da 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 Accordingly, his testimony was irrelevant to the issues before the court. <laughs> Defendants offered Jason Flemons, a CPA as an expert in the field of, an, of accounting, da 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 He contradicted himself a bunch of times. Accordingly, Mr. Flemons' testimony is of no evidentiary value as the plaintiff has not alleged that defendants used an impermissible method, which is what he testified about, but that they have inputted and used patently false data with a permissible method. There was another guy in here that I wanted to mention. Here we go. Gary Giletti. Defendants offered Gary Giletti as an expert in surety underwriting and surety brokering insurance or something. He has an ongoing personal and professional relationship with Donald Trump. Having met him in the late 90s, Giletti plays golf and lunches with Donald Trump and is a member of a bunch of his clubs. Additionally, sometime between 2017 and 2018, Giulietti became the Trump Organization's insurance broker, and he remains its broker to this day. Money quote here from the judge. In its over 20 years on the bench, this court has never encountered an expert witness who not only was a close personal friend of a party, but also who had a personal financial interest in the outcome of the case for which he is being offered as an expert. <laughs> so not much credibility for that guy. Um, I mean, it's like every, every expert that Trump and his attorneys put forward were contradicting themselves. Uh, and on the whole, the court was unable to ascribe any reliability to this one expert's expert opinions, finding them unresearched, unsupported, inconsistent, and contradicted by ample other documentary and testimonial evidence. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, these guys, these guys... Uh, it's just page after page after page of just these sh shitty expert witnesses. Okay, so then uh, we're gonna. The last section we're gonna talk about is the assets that were involved here. The triplex, uh, Donald Trump's condo in Trump Tower. It's ten thousand nine hundred ninety-six square feet. For years and years and years, they represented it as being thirty thousand square feet resulting in an annual overvaluation of between 114 to 207 million dollars. Thank you, Alan Weisselberg. Uh, 40 Wall Street. Uh, they overvalued the building by 227 million at one point. then they overvalued it by 120 million. Then they said it had uh, positive annual revenues of 64 million dollars to $26 million. 
even though it ran an annual deficit as high as $21 million. So they were lying about, just lying about everything all over the place. Then there's a limited partnership that Trump uh, has a 30% interest in called Vornado Realty Trust. It's like tornado with a V. They own a very famous building out here in San Francisco, 555 California Street, and then another building in Manhattan at 1290 Avenue of the Americas. And where was this one thing? Okay, so once once they got they also they they got busted by Forbes again uh, on the square footage of his condo, so they had to fix that. And the same year that they had to fix that, they just added two hundred and sixty eight million dollars to the value of that building at twelve ninety Avenue of the Americas. Nothing changed with it. They just lost this thing over here. So they doubled it and dumped it on that building over there. Lying about it. It's crazy. And also, the the 30% interest that Trump owned in the Vornado uh, Realty Trust. Yeah. He can't touch that. Okay, so he owns 30%, but that's not a majority share. So he can't take money out of that thing. He can't force anybody to refinance anything. Um, but all of his people on his statements of financial condition, they took the value of uh, his 30% interest in the Vornado Realty Trust and put it on the statements of financial condition as though it was cash, as though it was liquid and readily available liquid cash, which you're not allowed to do that. Uh, Trump Park Avenue, that's boring. Seven Springs. We talked about that's the uh, oh, and then we're going to get to Mar-a-Lago here in a minute. Um, that's the thing that that it was it was a proposed development project at a piece of land that they own in Westchester County, and with the development plans in place, it's worth five point five million, but they put it in their books as worth one hundred and sixty one million dollars. So. And and also on on these statements of financial condition, they consistently listed Mar-a-Lago as a private residence instead of a social club, even though there's a deed restriction in perpetuity preventing that property from being used as a private residence or being developed as a private residence. And But because they were characterizing it as uh, a private residence. Accordingly, there can be no mistake that Donald Trump's valuation of Mar-a-Lago from 2011 to 2021 was fraudulent. Um, and, and he thinks, he, Trump thinks that Mar-a-Lago is worth a billion to $1.5 billion, which would make it the most expensive, if it was a residence, the most expensive piece of residential property in the United States times four. <laughs> um, and then they go through some stuff with the uh, Doral golf course. And yeah, and there was some more of that like development hijinks with that. Um, and then they also screwed over a bunch of insurance companies as well. Um, so that's the order from Judge Engeron, because then we get to conclusions of law where I started this podcast. Um, 
it's a really interesting document to read. It's an extremely dense document to read. It's a it's 92 pages and it's a lot, man. So, but I hope that uh, provides everybody with some understanding about what's in that document and what all this stuff means. Um, you know, if you have any other questions, let me know in the comments. And uh, as always, huge thanks to my brother Falcon for making all of this possible and to our buddy Wiseacre for his graphics and to our buddy Anu for uh, his wonderful music that he has allowed us to use as well. Uh, you can get your Hawk merch at hawkmerchstore.com. And as I said at the beginning, we have four podcasts that we put out each week, four different podcast shows, and we put out five episodes a week. And you can learn more about those at hawkpodcasts.com. All right. I hope everybody has an amazing week. Take care. 